Liverpool Leslie Hour, helping people tell their stories. And now your host, Paul Leslie. Hey, it's me. We are going to get into our interview with the very talented Alan Pasqua in just a moment. But before we begin, let me just remind you that the Paul Leslie Hour is made possible by listeners like you. To make a contribution, just go to thepaulleslie.com. And one more thing, if you like the interview, please consider sharing it on social media or by telling a friend. Let's get into the show. Well, ladies and gentlemen, I'm joined by a very talented, accomplished performing and recording pianist. Alan Pasqua is a composer and educator. In addition to his recordings featuring his compositions, as well as his interpretations of both standards and other writers' work, he's collaborated with a long list of people, everyone from Eddie Money, Rick Springfield, Carlos Santana, Bob Dylan, and others. He has a recent album out. It's called Daydream. I highly suggest everyone out there checks that out, and I'm very honored to welcome Alan Pasqua on the show today. Thank you so much for joining us. Hey, Paul, thank you for having me. Pleasure to be with you today. It's an honor. So, Mr. Pasqua, what has always been the purpose of the art you create? Well, I guess what interested me about music was, you know, I would listen to it, even you know, as a young kid, a young child, whatever, and there was, you know, something about it that, that, touched me and that made me that drew me into it and I think a lot of it has to do with melody and you know I would I would listen to symphony orchestras you know as a kid and you know I mean the melodies that I heard were really special and really you know they long lasting you know it wasn't just a, a a cheap shot. It was uh, something that 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 really stood the test of time, and I think that really kind of influenced me a, a great deal. I also, you know, when I was little, little little kid, I was my family took me down to Atlantic City to the Steel Pier, and uh, Buddy Rich had a big band that was performing, and that that was probably the first live jazz I had ever seen, and I just remember how exciting it was and that kind of really drew me in and I was it really piqued my interest of just you know what I heard and what it felt like you know to hear that live was really incredible so that kind of that's I think that's how it all started and you use the word here exciting and a lot of the recordings you've made have been of jazz what is it about jazz that you find the most exciting well you know i I'm, i think the excitement can really come from a lot of different can come from different ways you know it's not just high energy technical things that most people you know would find exciting but some of the most exciting is you know is if you're playing with a group of musicians that and everyone is really listening to one another and you know it's almost like the band is breathing together they're phrasing together they're creating space together they're 
they're really on the same page. They're not second guessing one another and they're not trying to be cute, but they're, you know, they're just really in the moment. And that is sublimely exciting and, and incredibly rewarding. It doesn't always happen, mind you, but when it does, it's very, very, very special. And, you know, thank God we've got a lot of our hero, our jazz heroes have, you know, provided us with a lot of recorded moments. Uh, performances like that well on that note of, of heroes and these recordings can you tell us about perhaps a few recordings that have been very influential to you sure i mean in no particular order but you know i mean I, if i go you know i can try and sort of chronologically early on you know oscar peterson records and his trio and of course, Bill Evans, Trio 64, Live at Montreux, Trio 65, Alone, Conversations with Myself. Then, you know, then I re then I went further back and, you know, listened to all the Riverside recordings. Everybody digs Bill Evans and, yeah. You know, I, I wasn't even aware of the, the work that he had done prior to that with George Russell, who wound up being one of my teachers in college. But I, to my delight, I found out about that, you know, later on. And, you know, jazz track, Miles Davis, the vinyl, which is now called the 58 Sessions with the sextet with Train and Cannonball and Paul Chambers, that band had a really, really big influence on I me. Mean, that was the first I had ever heard Train. And the sound of that tenor saxophone, I'll, I just I'll never forget. The sound of the record was incredible and how Bill played, you know, his intro on Green Dolphin and his intro on Stella. I mean, they're just superlatives. Train, Love Supreme, Blue Train, and Transition is probably, you know, in terms of that quintet, his quintet being at the peak of their their game, I think Transition was really probably that record. You know, I mean, Miles, of course, Wayne, Herbie, uh, you know, the list goes on and on. All of Chick's records, Now He Sings, Now He Sobs, huge influence on me. All his ECM recordings, the solo piano records, Tones for Jones Bones. So, you know, these are near and dear to me, and... um they never get old, and I, every time I listen, I find something new that I missed. <laughs> so <laughs> that's the beauty of art. You know, you can look at a painting for 50 years, and you might just see a different color each time you look at it, or a different shape, or you know, something new in that canvas, or watercolor, <laughs> or photograph, you know. So true. Now, you mentioned Chick Corea. Did you, did you know him? I did know Chick, a little bit. Mm-hmm. He studied. Well, he was I mean, he was from East Boston. And I believe he studied with Madame Shaloff when he was younger, as did I when I was a student in Boston. And our paths would cross every so often. I lived at a time in a part of Los Angeles, right near his recording studio, Mad Hatter, uh, up in Silver Lake. We would see each other from time to time, or on the road. Most beautiful guy. And this, just the supreme positive force in music and, you know, just his outlook and 
his whole creative approach was really, really, really very, very special. Uh, right to the right to the end, and it was a sad day when we all found out that that chick had left us. It's quite a surprise to everybody. Oh yeah, but what a gift he gave us! Wow. Oh yeah, such a, an incredible body of work. Yeah. And diverse. I mean, really, really diverse. Yeah. Now, as I was mentioning at the beginning, you're an educator as well. The professor yeah. of jazz studies at USC, the Thornton School of Music. What is the biggest thing that you would like your students, any of the students you have, What was what's the biggest thing you'd like them to walk away with from from your teaching? Well, you know, I teach private instruction, and then I also teach the juniors and seniors the jazz improvisation course there. And that's a hands-on two-hour class twice a week where we, we are all playing. I don't, I don't, I guess what I tell them is I don't want to teach them in a way that's going to make them sound great and sound exactly the same as the next guy. So we come up with a different curriculum every year depending upon the class and their strengths and weaknesses. And I design, you know, songs and vehicles that we'll work on improvisatory. And, you know, basically I want to get everybody out of their comfort zone a little bit. And the class is a safe place to do that. We all take chances. We all succeed. We all fail. And that's kind of the beauty of it because you don't get good unless you are willing to fail. And you don't play anything meaningful unless you're willing to fail. That's what my first band leader, Tony Williams, taught me. You know, I want everybody when they leave their year with me, hopefully to have developed their own voice, their own sound as an artist and as a musician and and maybe broaden their, their perception of what they're doing when they're, you know, just with music and when they're playing music. And, you know, we tend to, I mean, we're, we're, we're operating at a very, very sophisticated level, but we also can tend to be very shut down and closed off and not really aware while we're operating at this incredibly sophisticated level. So the real challenge is to, is to, you know, implement all these tools that we have, that we've learned, these, these skill sets, and at the same time, like, rise above what we're doing and being able to listen to what we're doing in the moment and react to that in a musical way. I mean, that's the ultimate, I think. It's not to play a bunch of licks, and, you know, that word is forbidden in my class. <laughs> it's, just, it's really, you know, we make, music spontaneously, you know, and some days we do it better than others, but we're always, you know, trying to climb that mountain. Whether you're performing or you're recording, how often are you thinking of the listener when you play? Hmm. I mean, I, I always like to keep the listener in mind. I think it's important. You know, I think part of the problems with jazz is that it can become a selfish 
art form. And that's not a good thing. That doesn't help us promote promote it and have it succeed in, in a larger scale. So it's, you know, it's important. You know, I, I, um, I think, you know, it's like, what do I want to hear? I want to play what I want to hear, you know. I'm not so interested in the technical aspect of things. I mean, of course, it's important, but that's just a means to an end. You know, that's not the end. That's not the, the pot of gold, the, the technique. It's just a, a way to be able to hopefully express yourself more more clearly. So I, I want to uh, hopefully the listener will be touched by whatever music I'm playing and will we'll walk away from that experience and they'll be able to take something with them, a feeling, a melody, you know, uh, they'll be able to articulate maybe uh, something about it that was positive for them. Hmm. You know, you, you were mentioning earlier about the class. You said that this word licks is, is forbidden. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I've had several experiences where I would f- leave a jazz concert and I would go up and talk to random people that I would see. And I would ask, what was the high point? What was the low point? <laughs> and a lot of mm-hmm. times I found that people would say, when he started doing all this stuff, <laughs> And referring to licks, I started to tune out. Uh huh. So that's interesting to me. Yep. And so you try to impart that in your students to this awareness. Yeah, really, really important. And, you know, I mean, a lick could be something that you've heard before and that we've copied and then played it kind of perfected it and kind of play it unconsciously but it can also be something that you've discovered yourself and have worked out so that so that it's all of a sudden being played unconsciously and you know it's it's not good (laughs) (laughs) it's not sincere it's uh it's it's unconscious you know and in 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 a moment where we're supposed to be conscious you know, that's the whole point of, of that music is, you know, in its best moments, it's people really executing at a super high level in, in, in real time. You know, we're not learning a Beethoven sonata. I mean, we, we do. We have to learn the Beethoven sonata and then take it apart and understand the form and the chords and the melody and then write our own sonata. On top of on top of that form, that's what we're doing. One of the names you mentioned just uh, a little while ago was Tony Williams, the legendary drummer Tony Williams. Yeah, I'm hoping you can tell the listeners about meeting him. Well, it's a great story. I uh, spent my first two years of college at Indiana University. Peter Erskine was my roommate for one of the one of the years. We had a funk band together, so we've known each other for a long time, 50 years now. And uh, my second two years, I transferred to Boston and went to uh, New England Conservatory because I had met Jackie Byard, who was going to become my piano teacher, lucky for me. What I didn't realize, the other added perks, was that uh, Thad Jones was going to be my arranging teacher, and George Russell, I was going to study uh, 
theory and his Lydian chromatic concept of tonal organization book for two years. One of the final semesters of my studies, George took over the big band. Jackie had it for a while, and then he gave it to George. And George came in with this body of music. Uh, and he said, fellas, we're going to work on this uh, suite of music of mine called Living Time. And um, Living Time was a commission George wrote for um, Bill Evans' trio and a large ensemble. And it was really interesting because the large ensemble had had two conductors. So inside this large ensemble, there were like multiple bands, multiple units, two drums, multiple keyboards. So things would be, you know, played in one tempo. Things would be played in another tempo. It was really an incredible body of work. On the record, it was a CBS record. Bill Evans' trio, Joe Henderson was on the recording, Jimmy Jufri was on the recording, Snooky Young was on the recording, and Tony Williams happened to be on the recording. At the end of the semester, George said, "Fellas, we're gonna take, we're gonna go to New York, and we're gonna play this live at Carnegie Hall, and I'm gonna take some of you with me. We're gonna augment the band." And lucky for me, I happened to be one of the guys that George chose to go down to New York. When I got there and we got to Carnegie and we set up, uh, the stagehand told me to set my electric keyboards up behind this large yellow drum set. <laughs> and lo and behold, it was Tony. And, you know, I'm a, probably I said hello to him. I don't even remember. I was so damn nervous. And we played the gig. And I was living on Cape Cod at that time. It was winter time. I got back to the Cape and my roommate said, Hey, Tony Williams just called. And I thought, of course, he was kidding. <laughs> and he said, Yeah, call him back. I was like, Get out of here. He goes, No, really, he did. Here's his number. So I called him and, um, and he said, Man, I'm putting this new band together and I'm, you know, looking for keyboard players. And I'm wondering if you want to come down to New York and, and play a little bit and we'll see what happens. So I, you know, I jumped at the chance, of course. And um, when I got to Tony's, place in New York City, Alan Holsworth was already there. And, and he was actually in the audience that night at Carnegie. And, you know, I didn't know who he was at the time, but we had met and quickly became buddies. And, uh, you know, I wound up staying in New York for a little bit and uh, the band was formed. We got Tony Newton from Detroit to play bass and, and we made our first, first record, Believe It. What do you think is the, the biggest thing you learned from Tony Williams? Um, that he encouraged me to take chances mm -hmm. and that, to, to, you know, nothing ventured, nothing gained. That he told me, basically, he said he did an interview once with someone and they said, you know, Mr. Williams, you played with uh, Jimi Hendrix and Miles Davis and John Coltrane. Was there anything similar about the three of them? And, and Tony said, yes, they were all willing to fail. Hmm. So that always stuck with me. And the, he taught me also how to be a band leader in that he never ever told me what to play, like note-wise. And he was a very accomplished composer, by the way. But he he discussed it more in terms of the orchestra, in terms of orchestration. He would say things like, Alan, listen to where you know Alan Holsworth is playing. 
and maybe voice your, can you voice your chords around the melody, you know, rather than all underneath it or all on top of it, or, you know, can you put some sparkle on, you know, it was very paintbrush stroke oriented guidance rather than I want you to play a C major seven with a sharp five. You know, it was not, none of that. There wasn't detail stuff. He left that up to us to be creative, but he just kind of conceptually, you know, would push us in a direction. And I'm sure that's what miles did for to him as well. I was listing just a few of the artists that you've worked with at the beginning in the introduction, but I've always been fascinated with some of our great composers, and uh, a lot of them are known for their contributions to film. I'm hoping you can tell us just a little bit, just to name some of the composers you've worked with. John Williams, Quincy Jones, Jerry Goldsmith, Dave Grusin, the great Henry Mancini. Tell us a little bit about working with them. Amazing stuff. Well, geez, I mean, I... You know, I was in a, I mean, I found myself, you know, all of a sudden in the studios working. And that was something I kind of never really set out to do, kind of like teaching. I never really set out to, you know, be a college professor. It's just one thing led to another, and all of a sudden it sort of happened. Yeah, I they were, these guys are geniuses, all of them, all of them. Thad told me that Quincy was the next he was the heir apparent to Duke. Hmm. Yeah. And I was, you know, I was, so, I felt so out of my league in sitting in an orchestra because I was playing mostly synthesizer at this time. Synthesis, you know, synthesizer, occasionally acoustic piano. But, you know, I mean, I would walk in and, you know, see studios in Los Angeles and it's like a hundred of the greatest musicians in the world sitting there. You know, and, um, (laughs) you know, the love they showed for these guys, for Jerry and John and Henry Mancini. I I got to work with Henry once, I remember, and I I was kind of pretty, uh, you know, I my time as senior was maybe like seven or eight years long. That was about it. And this was probably around year five. So I was pretty well established at this point. And I went up to the podium on a little break you know, to say hello and introduce myself. You know, I said, hi, Henry, hi, uh, my name's Alan Pasco. And he looked at me and went, Alan, he goes, I hear you're the new guy. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, I mean, these guys were such pros and they operated on such another level. I mean, it was just always, it was jaw dropping. I remember, um, on the John Williams, one of his soundtracks, it was for a movie he did called Nixon. And we did the main title. And I just remember after we recorded the main title and it was this big bombastic piece, you know, he gave the final cutoff and it was silent in the room. And then it was almost like on cue, the whole orchestra just started cheering and like, and applauding <laughs> and I, they gave John a standing ovation. Hmm. I mean, these incredible things would go on, you know, that nobody knows about, you know, in the studios, but these guys and Jerry, I got to do a, a score with him, mostly synthesizer, me and him in the control room and 
reading off of his scores, his handwritten scores. Uh, you know, it's like these are once in a lifetime opportunities, you know. So very lucky to have uh, had the opportunity to, to do these kind of things. And these guys were, these were really heavyweight guys, geniuses. I want to call to the attention of, of the listeners out there. There is a great show called Jazz Inspired, hosted by Judy Carmichael. And I listened to the episode with you on there. And there was something that she said that really struck me. First of all, it was a great interview that you all did. But Thanks. she said that she thought music is increasingly being devalued. And it really struck me. And I'm wondering, what are your thoughts on that? Music is being devalued. Well, yeah. It, well, it's, it is completely devalued. It's free. Yeah. <laughs> and it's, you know, how did it get that way? You know, how, how did it get that way? Hmm. You still have to, you know, you go to the Museum of Modern Art, you have to buy a ticket. You know, and that's a museum. But somehow we spend our lives learning, you know, this very high skill set and we make recordings sometimes of our own music, sometimes of others. And then we release it. And within a day, everything is uploaded on the internet by some, someone and it's free. Hmm. Anybody can just go and have it and, and, and take it. And I, I hate it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I, I don't know how it's going to reverse itself, but somehow it needs to be remonetized so that we uh, artists are compensated for our blood, sweat and tears, man, our work. Cause it, it ain't, you know, it, it wasn't free. I assure you. Right. Learning how to do what we do wasn't free. And it, that has to start at a, at a really early age, you know, to, because you know, what, what, a, what does a little child know? Oh, Spotify. Oh, you know, YouTube music, you know, Apple, it's free. Mm-hmm. It's just there. You, you don't have to pay for it. <laughs> so, right. You know, not okay. Right. That's right. But, you know, it's one of these things for an artist. You know, some people, they do things to rebel, like they, they release only on vinyl record. But there's this uh-huh. increasing mentality of, well, if you're not on Spotify, if you're not on Apple or Apple Music, you're not anywhere, you know? Correct. You're not. Yeah, yeah. it's tough. But you know what? You, you are, whether you like it or not, because there's really nothing you can do about it. Yeah. <laughs> You know, there's nothing you can do about it. When you were making this Daydream album, yeah, was there a particular goal, a particular direction that you were trying to take? No, I mean, it was kind of, it was a follow-up to my prior recording soliloquy, which was my first, first solo piano recording of standards, of not my, my own music. And it was on my new Steinway piano, which is just the Rolls Royce of pianos I have. I'm so fortunate to have this instrument. I wanted to just play songs that I loved that really melodically touched me and really stayed with me. And I just didn't really want to make, I didn't want to have, I didn't want to label it. Oh, this is a jazz piano record or, you know, oh, this is a, you know, 
I just wanted to play the songs and some of the songs were more improvised than others. And some were in tempo, some started in tempo and then just kind of fell out of tempo. Like I really had no agenda except that I wanted to try and make a, a decent rendition of the song and how, you know, I'd, I'd like to hear it and how I'd like to tr- play it. So Daydream was kind of a, a follow-up to that. And, uh, you know, a couple more obscure tunes on there, maybe. Old Cape Cod, kind of a... <laughs> you don't hear that too much. <laughs> but, you know, I just... It was really tr- uh, kind of a personal... Uh, experience and, and a personal recording. I tried to make the sound very intimate. So it's almost like you and me in the room and I'm just playing piano for you. When you release an album into the world and the reviews come, do the reviews matter to you? Only if they're good. No. <laughs> 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 well, you know, I mean, there. I, I swear to God, there is some truth to what I just said. They, I guess they all matter, sure. I mean, we all want to be appreciated and respected for what we do. I try not to let the reviews that are written by someone who doesn't really get what I'm doing, I try not to let those bug me too much. But, you know, it's kind of tricky to, to, to be a reviewer. It's tricky, you know? It's like, okay. (laughs) Okay, you have the license to tell me, to, to tell everybody what you think of me. (laughs) (laughs) So, it's one person's opinion, and that's what you have to remember, I think. Yeah. Be it good or bad, you know? Or whether it's not even negative or positive, but if they just kind of miss the miss the the reason or the 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 motif the motive behind the the recording, you know. Hmm. Well, in the same vein of of opinion, uh, compliments. Has there been a compliment that you've received through the years that perhaps means the most to you? Well, hmm. I mean, there's sort of compliments. I mean, Jackie Byard, who I love so much, he um, he came to see me play with Tony Williams at the bottom line in New York City. And I didn't know he was coming. So that was the first compliment, that my teacher would come and, and see me play a gig. And then... In the and Jackie's a character. He's incredible. In the audience, in between tunes, he was he was heckling me, saying, "Hey, big time, big time!" <laughs> <laughs> and I I just thought that was so fantastic. You know, I loved him. I oh, I still love him. His my ringtone on my phone is some of his stride piano. <laughs> I've had it for. Years, I think of him every day, and uh, you know, he really, he, he, you know, meeting him in Boston kind of changed my whole life and my career. So that's one, and then the other was more of a, not anything musical, but I got to play with Joe Williams, 
great singer with bassy band, etc. Um, in Boston for we did a run of ten nights at the Playboy Club. Alan Dawson played drums, and uh, I was a young student, lucky again to be doing this gig. And one of the nights, Joe, after the gig, said, "Hey, Alan, we're a bunch of us are going to go down to Chinatown and get something to eat. You want to come?" And I kind of looked. I was kind of shocked. I was like, "Oh, uh, okay, man." And I said, "I got to go to my apartment. Got to go and drop something off." But yeah, okay, sure. So he told me where it was, and I went back to Jamaica Plain and dropped off my stuff and drove down to Chinatown. And I remember I was walking towards the front door, and I could see this round table back into the round table facing the front door. So. When I opened the door, he he saw me. He was in the middle of saying something, and he just stood up and came over to me. And he's a big guy, and just put his arms around me and just gave me this giant bear hug, <laughs> and then kind of, you know, almost picked me up and just like looked me right in the eyes and said, "You came." Oh well. And I said, "Yeah, yeah." And he said. You kept your word. And, and I was like, yeah. And he said, you're a man of your word, Alan. And I was just like, oh, yeah, just I am. <laughs> and I never forgot that. I mean, what a life's lesson that was, you know, to not be a BSer. And, you know, that really, man, it just stayed with me. Still, you know, incredible. What a great human being he was. <laughs> Wow. Singer. <laughs> Absolutely. What a great story. <laughs> Isn't that crazy? <laughs> yeah. Well, something that is a very interesting recording, I don't know what you'd call it exactly, but some people have heard the, the Nobel Lecture when Bob Dylan won the Nobel Prize for Literature. And yeah. I remember hearing that when it, when it came out, and I, I I wondered. I always wonder about a lot of things, but I wondered. I wonder who this is that's playing. That was you. <laughs> yeah, it was. <laughs> so, what kind of direction did you get to create this piece? I got the. I got actually really good direction. Uh, Bob's manager called me and you know asked me if I was available to do some solo piano recording. And, I, you know, I just kind of kept poking around like, well, what is it? <laughs> you know, at first it was like I wasn't going to find out. And then I just was persistent. <laughs> and then they said, well, it's, you know, it's it's for the his acceptance speech for the Nobel Prize. He's not going to be able to be there in person, but he wanted to do something a little special, you know, in, in, his, in his acceptance speech. Um, and then they asked if, you know, they referenced the old Steve Allen shows when Steve would sit at the piano and just kind of play. And, it, it, you know, they said it's not jazzy and it's it sort of is and it's not bluesy, but it sort of is. And it's kind of just a little bit dreamy and spacey. It sort of is, you know, but it, so they gave me some really good buzzwords of like what I could kind of just touch upon but not really go 100% with both feet you know not to die them with both feet but just that really gave me a nice framework of words to to kind of 
just go off on. And, you know, then I said, okay, I, I think I know. I said, let me just, I'll put down a minute or two of just some piano ramblings and send it off and see if that's what you're looking for. So I did that and they called me right back and they said, that's exactly it. Perfect. I said, okay, great. You know, how much do you need? How much music do you need? And they said, we need 30 minutes. And I said, oh, okay. And I I said, when do you need it by? And they said, today. (laughs) So I, I just sat down and turned up the corridor, you know, I think I said probably rather than give you a 30 minute piece, I'll do three 10 minute pieces. I did three or four pieces for them that, you know, gave them the amount of time of music. And then they just kind of went through it and picked parts that they liked. It's really great to do as, you know, anytime I have a chance to work with Bob, it always is. It's amazing. Well, we should mention that uh, Mr. Bob Dylan, he's recently turned 80 years old. and Yeah, happy birthday, Bob. <laughs> <laughs> that that last studio album, the 39th one, you're featured on there. And yeah. the music of, of that whole album, I think, the, the way the, the album sounds is really great. But um, yeah. is there something about Bob Dylan that you think people have the wrong conception on? Oh, I don't know. I mean, geez, there's probably something on every one of us that people have the wrong conception on. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. You know, that's probably how he'd answer that. (laughs) I don't know, you know. I mean, I just, I just, uh, you know, I'm a fan, you know, first, (laughs) and was lucky enough to be a bandmate and, uh, you know, in different times of my life have, you know, recorded with him and, um, it's always been a, a really, really good day. It's the best, you know. <laughs> best way I could describe it. It's like, wow, this is a really good day. <laughs> what did you think, from from your perspective, from your opinions, what did you think when you listened back to the finished version of that song, Murder Most Fell, for the very first time? Such a unique recording. What did you think? You mean after it was uh, after it was mixed? Yeah, that when you find when you heard this is the- yeah, I, I I loved it. I mean, in the studio when we were working on it, you know, it's 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 free. It's in tempo wise. It's in it's a free time, you know, and, and sometimes in free time, I mean, that transcends everything. I mean, you know, that's that goes straight into into my world of jazz. (laughs) And I mean, you can go as far out as you want with it, or you can stay as inside as you want with it, but it's still that, that really speaks to my vocabulary. I remember saying to Bob in the studio, I said, this is not unlike for me. It was, it was not unlike a love Supreme in a lot of ways in terms of, just the the feeling and the way the construction. I mean, it's it that was there was something that that special about it. I loved it. I thought it was you know what a great track. Eighteen minutes long, I think. Yeah, yeah, very unique. Well, you know, you've worked with everyone from these legends in all types of genres, jazz rock music. Is there anyone you've always wanted to work with that you haven't yet? 
(laughs) Too many to name. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, too many to name. (laughs) I mean, in 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 the pop world, I wish I had known Joni Mitchell. Mm-hmm. I wish I had known James Taylor. I wish I had known Springsteen. Yeah, I mean, good Lord. It's, God, the list, that's a long list. <laughs> <laughs> that's a long list. Uh, you know, I'm a music fan, too, so it's there's just so many wonderful musicians and artists, you know, and people that I, you know, that I've I had no idea, you know, there's, it's, it's, the, the well is so deep, you know? Mm-hmm. I just, you know, it, I didn't know about John Prime until after he had passed, unfortunately, and listened to that, you know, him and Iris DeMent and, and what fantastic music and, and, you know, beautiful, simple, Incredible performances by these these people. You know, I got to work with Johnny Cash once in the studio. It was unbelievable. And and he felt he told us he was fellows. I feel so out of place. Wow. <laughs> you know, and nicest nicest guy on the planet too. To to us. So yeah, I mean, it's just it, the the list of it would take a month of me saying names. <laughs> but I'm I'm grateful to all those that I have had the chance to work with for sure. Johnny Cash said he felt out of place. Uh-huh. Hmm. Do you think uh, when when someone is an artist, is it more important to be humble or is it more important to be confident? Well, I think there's a way to be both, as long as humble kind of takes the upper tier. Hmm. I think that that'll work better for you. <laughs> so if confidence takes the upper tier and humble, it, uh, humble doesn't work so well below confidence. Kind <laughs> <laughs> of get swallowed up by it. So I guess it's more important to be humble. Hmm. But you know, you have to also be confident and be able to uh, express yourself and say what's important and what's meaningful and be able to convey that to the you know musicians that you're working with too. Hmm. Well, what is on the horizon with Alan Pasqual? What's what's coming up? Well, let's see. I'm doing some you know, I'm getting ready to start on a third solo record here. More interesting standards and probably I'll include a couple of my original tunes. I wrote a some stuff over this last year break that we've all been on and glad that that's coming to a, hopefully to a peaceful conclusion soon. <laughs> some, a little bit of touring, hopefully later this fall and heading into the winter with uh, Pete, my partner in crime, Pete Erskine and Dark Alls. Maybe we'll, we're going to do a little bit of playing. And looks like USC is going to be back in full swing in the fall, hopefully. So get to corrupt some young minds for another <laughs> year <laughs> and uh, work with these super uber-talented young kids that are just really something else. I, I look at them and I I think to myself, there's no way that we were that good <laughs> <laughs> at their age during our time. It's not not possible. That's how good they are. 
you know, and writing, I'll, I'll be, you know, always looking for that new little spark. Never know when it's going to happen or where it comes from. Hmm. On the note of standards, you mentioned the standards here. There's something that's, oh, it's always fascinated me that, you know, I was listening to some of the recordings that you, you've done, and it made me think about how the standards are such that you can hear an instrumental recording of one of these songs. Think about the song and think about the words, and when it's played, like, for example, played by you on the piano, you think about the words, but you don't miss the singer. <laughs> you know? Well, yeah. I mean, you know, the rumor has it is that we're all trying to be singers. Interesting. <laughs> yeah, that's the first instrument. Hmm. So it's, you know, I mean, that's the one thing that Madame Shaloff in Boston taught me and probably taught Chick, too, was that, you know, she said, Alan, the piano is a wind instrument. Hmm. And I thought she was crazy. I said, what are you talking about? And she says, you have to play it, you know, as if it had a mouthpiece on it and, and you have to connect your breath to it. Otherwise, you know, it does it won't mean anything. And boy, how right she is. Very interesting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I want all the listeners out there, you can go to alanpasqua.com, P-A-S-Q-U-A, and at the top it says Steinway piano artist, educator, and baseball fanatic. <laughs> yeah. And hockey, hockey fanatic now, too. I'm a <laughs> hockey, new, huh? New hockey fan. Yeah, love it. <laughs> I remember a, a great famous arranger, who was a guest on this show, Sammy Nestico. Oh, sure. Great. He said, uh, there's two things that are the absolute most American things in the world, and that is jazz music and baseball. Yeah, he's right. And it sounds like you, did you know him? I did. I got to work with Sammy a little bit out here in the studios. Fantastic. This wonderful man, wonderful arranger. Yep. <laughs> Very sweet, too. <laughs> oh, yeah. This beautiful guy. What is the best thing about being Alan Pasqua? <laughs> well, you know, I get to do things like this. <laughs> you know, it's kind of not everybody has that fortune in their life where, you know, people are curious about them and ask them questions about themselves and their life. Yeah, boy. You know, I'm, I'm a I'm a lucky guy. I have a beautiful daughter and uh, talented as well. Incredible ears. She's a, a musician. Incredible ears and rhythm, time, and somehow the melody bug got into her as well. So her name is Greta. You know, it's I think uh, my I have a charmed life. It's been very very varied in terms of what I've when I've what I've been able to do and uh I like being able to put on different hats. It's kind of keeps it interesting. Hmm. It's a good question. <laughs> yeah. It's <laughs> fun to think about. It's a hard question, huh? <laughs> yeah, no kidding. I'm glad I don't have to answer. <laughs> <laughs> I put on all these labels on you at the beginning. That you're a pianist, yeah. a composer, a performer, a recording artist, a teacher. So my last question, 
who is Alan Pasqua at heart? Who is Alan Pasqua? Oh, I'd probably, a, I think, a pianist. You know, pianist, composer. That's that's what I, you know, and hopefully a good dad. <laughs> you know, those, that's what I gravitate towards anyway. If there was 50,000 synthesizers in a room and a Steinway grand piano, I'd walk over to the piano. <laughs> <laughs> or if my daughter was in the room, I'd, I'd walk over to her and uh-huh. uh, <laughs> hang out with her. <laughs> Well, thank you so much for spending time with us. Uh, You're welcome, Paul. Thank you for having me. Really appreciate it. My pleasure. My honor. Well, sir. Thanks again, man. My (laughs) pleasure. Keep me apprised. Will do. Absolutely. All right, sir. Well, have a wonderful afternoon. Until next time. Thanks again. The boop, bop, deep, bop, doodly, keep. Pop doodly shop pop a ding a daka Una Zikara Zilaka Pon Tonk Kukita Pi Zilla Baka Tonkin Tonk Pont Goodle Gold Goodle Loop Bo Goodbye